Well, good evening, everyone, those who are joining us right now and those who are uh, soon to follow up after the fact to hear how the discussion went. Uh, my name is Phil. I'm uh, volunteering with Christ Church, and this is our new uh, Bible study um, of Kings and Prophets, uh, the voices from the Haftarah. Many of you might um, hear a familiar word there, Haftorah, and you think that it's Torah, but it's actually not the same root. This Haftarah is the ending of uh, the reading in synagogue. You'll read first from the Torah itself in what's called the parasha, sometimes slurred by Americans as Parsha because we think of portion. Uh, it's a, a fun mnemonic for that. And then followed up with a reading that's not from Torah, usually from the prophets, um, which tells us from the Nevi'im the stories of prophets and kings in the history of the nation of Israel. And the order, unlike the reading of Torah, is not chronological. The order actually is thematically tied to the Parsha of each week. So we will jump seemingly at random from book to book and story to story. And I think this actually helps us better um, see how scripture is tied together uh, and how Torah reverberates beyond the section of the Pentateuch in the Bible. It actually has enormous ramifications in the rest of Holy Writ for us. And reading through this throughout the year was going to help us see those interwoven themes much more in depth. So our first session tonight will be led by Reverend uh, Deacon Aaron Imey from Christ Church here in Jerusalem. Aaron is going to take us through first the portion that will go alongside Simchat Torah. Um, this is supposed to be uh, one of the most joyous feast days um, in the liturgical calendar. And it is literally the joy of Torah. And yet I believe all of you know that this year, um, unfortunately, and to the great fear, to great distress, um, we had to struggle with the command to celebrate and also the immediate concern and mourning necessitated by the attack by Hamas operatives on the nation of Israel and its citizens. And so we're going to work through Joshua 1, verses 1 to 18 tonight, partially in remembrance of the biblical story and partially in remembrance of uh, this very recent event. After which, if we still have some time, we'd love to get to this week's reading, uh, which is from Bereshit, the first reading in Genesis, where we will read alongside 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 18 to 42. And Aaron will take us through that. So um, if you will, go ahead and bow your heads or close your eyes, whatever is your tradition in entering into prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we want to dedicate this time and all of our respective places to you now tonight. God, we want to take a moment and pause and lift up the concerns of those who need a special measure of your grace this evening, those who need to be shown mercy this evening, those who need um, to be shown by your spirit that hope um, is not lost despite our circumstances and that you are close to the mourning and you are close to the suffering. God, be with our um, our young men and women and our reservists who've gone back to defend their country. Be with those who are suffering on both ends of this fight, whether by lack of aid or lack of attention from the rest of the world or simply the dangerous circumstances they find themselves in tonight, God. And be also with us. We believe that your spirit ties us together globally as a universal church. 
empowered by your word and inspired by your spirit to do good in all corners of the world. And we don't know exactly how our devotion individually will fit into the broad tapestry of what you're doing worldwide, God. But we ask that this time and space be dedicated to you so that we can partake in what you're doing worldwide tonight. God, teach us, lead us, love us through each of us. And let all that we do be the glory of your name and the edification of your church. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank Aaron, you very you, much. Uh, yeah. Take us away. Yeah. So uh, um, has anyone ever told you you probably make a really good deacon? Just saying. But anyway. <laughs> so the 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 word haftorah haftara which uh, which Phil has pointed out is not the word Torah. Why is it called this? Where did it come about? What are we actually doing? Um, now I'm going to, to admit that I have no idea really why it's called haftara. It comes from the verb to exempt, right? Uh, uh, and um, what does it mean for the exemption? These are the exemption texts. I don't know. Depending on how you play around your your vowels, it could also mean the verb um, to be fired or to die. So, um, why are we, we we calling this section of readings this? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, no one could could quite convince me as to to why it is. When did it start? When does this idea of adding texts to um, to the reading of Torah come about? Well, uh, that's actually up for debate, although it seems most likely that it had actually occurred during the uh, the Maccabean period, so a couple of hundred years prior to, to Jesus. It's during this period where there is a resurgence of um, adherence to public reading of the Bible. The Bible becomes quite important in the in Jewish life, especially when trying to to cast away idolatry and the idea of Greek gods. And uh, the obviously the Torah is quite important, but what about the rest of it? So it, it seems like uh, the the idea of publicly reading the prophets and the kings, which occurred on Shabbat, but also several times during the week, twice a week, um, became part of the liturgical calendar uh, of the Jewish people, this rhythm that appears in Jewish life. Now, we do see it by the time of Jesus. We actually see it occur in the Gospels where Jesus goes to the synagogue and he's asked to read. And he does not read from the Torah. He actually reads from a portion of the prophets, the Haftarah. Somehow, by Jesus, the cycle is already there and it's already apportioned for him that this is the section that, uh, that you'll read. And as um, Phil highlighted, we had celebrated the full feasts. They had ended. It was great. And we were celebrating something called Simchat Torah, um, which is not in the Bible. It's a festival in the, in the actual Torah itself in the Bible. They're the eighth day of Sukkot, the final celebration that's actually in the Bible that closes all other celebrations. Is simply called the eighth day, Shmini uh, Atzeret, the 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 eighth day of assembly, um, and there's no rhyme or reason why you should 
get together on the eighth day other than it's a commandment from the Lord, but there's nothing that you should specifically do. Therefore, anything that you actually do on on uh, on Simchat Torah or on the eighth day of assembly is going to be a tradition. Because there's nothing actually physically listed in the Bible that you should do. It's a Middle Ages tradition that uh, that it becomes the day of ending and beginning the uh, the Torah reading, and that you should have this celebration called Simchat Torah, the joy of the Torah, and uh, and uh, it's supposed to be a day of celebration for the Word of God. Sounds fantastic. It's the only day of the year that you actually bring out the Torah scrolls at night. Every other time, you only ever bring out Torah scrolls to read in public during the daylight hours. But on Simchat Torah, you do it at night. So that would have been Friday night for us. Saturday, something horrible happened. The cycle uh, begins and ends. Beginning and endings often occur on the same day, in the same fashion, in the same in the same method. Uh, it's a very strong Jewish theme, which we see from Hebrew Bible and into the New Testament. Uh, the the, uh, the the cycle ends with the death of Moses, Deuteronomy thirty four. Begins with Genesis one, the creation story. Now, you don't have to believe that you know, Genesis is true. There are lots of people who don't. But the point of the of Bereshit is to tell us that there is a first cause. People, however you think the world created, I've got my own personal opinions, but however you think the world created, God is the beginning. And so he creates, and it sets up this incredible pattern. The first sentence in Hebrew has seven words. So it sets up this pattern of sevens. There's a seven-day week, which, by the way, the entire world celebrates, even if they don't have the Bible. Everyone seems to know that this seven is intricate into, into creation. And, uh, and God begins in uh, his creation with couples. Everything is made with its, its partner, so to speak, heaven and earth, night and day, male and female, good and evil. Um, this, this sort of idea that, that things are made, made together and they work together. God and man work together. And so, uh, uh, this, this 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 beautiful story begins to unpack, and uh, and what what reading from the prophets or from sacred history would they assign to this beginning? But Joshua, chapter one. Now the Torah, the first five books of the of the Bible, is a story that has a beginning, but it has no end. So it begins. God created the heavens and the earth. God starts everything. Then the, the world goes bad, and then you have a, a, a flood and a boat and a rainbow, and there's this wandering nomad, and there's a group of people in Egypt, and there's redemption from Exodus, and etc. etc. And there's this call to go to the promised land. But you never actually get there. The Torah is a story that has a beginning, but it has no end. It's just consistent. It's just this consistent thing. You start the story. You're about to get into the promised land. You start again. You never get there. 
and uh, and so there's this sort of idea that run the race, don't give up. The the only time the story ends is when God's going to come and take your breath away. So it's interesting that the portion that's read is the new part of the story. It's the entrance in to Canaan, Joshua chapter 1. And I'll read it as we go for those that are listening on the podcast. It's Joshua chapter 1. It's the, the, the beginning of the Israelite uh, uh, incursion into Canaan, the promised land. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as Moses has said. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, it shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. So be strong and of good courage. For as this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you to be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp, command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days... You will cross over this Jordan. You will go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord is giving you rest, is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock, they'll remain in the land which the Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren, armed, all your mighty men of valor, and you'll help them, until the Lord has given your brethren rest, as he has given you rest. And they shall also take possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession, and you'll enjoy it, which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan, toward the sunrise. So the hands of Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. 
There you go. That's the first story. So they've paired the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of creation, the beginning of the whole story with the beginning of, uh, of Israel coming into the land. So it's a nice little little pairing. There's a few things there that are quite quite interesting. First of all, you end up with uh, with with God speaking to Moses, uh, God speaking to Joshua for the very first time. Right, the actual word Joshua, the book of Joshua, is already loaded with meaning. What does the word Joshua mean? I hear you ask. Salvation. Jesus, right? Yehoshua, another word, another, another a name, the name for God, for God saves. So you've got this this uh, incredible opening where God begins to talk to Joshua. Although, let's notice something. God speaks to Joshua at the beginning of his career, and as you begin to go through the book, he stops talking. Interesting. God doesn't speak to us 100% of the time. Okay? You often find in the, in the story of a hero, God is very present at the beginning, very present at the beginning, but not always so much as the story unfolds. It doesn't mean he's not there. It just means you as participant in the plan of God need to be going about the king's business, not always waiting for God to tell you what to do, because he's already told you what to do. So go do it. You end up with this with this story of God speaking to Joshua. Has he spoken to Joshua before? Not like this. Okay. He's spoken to, to Moses before. Joshua may have even seen this actually occur. Uh, Joshua obviously doesn't turn around and go, oh my gosh, God's speaking to me. I'm going to faint over dead. He, uh, he, he, he listens. And, and God begins by saying, listen, you are, have been appointed as the replacement for Moses. Notice this is not a democracy. No one took a vote. Again, no one had an election and he got elected. This is an appointment process. Um, he is chosen uh, to serve. Moses has given a portion of his spirit, not all of his spirit. It's very interesting in numbers. God, Moses gives a portion of his spirit on Joshua. The, 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 the Moses figure that we're looking forward when it has all of Moses's spirit is the, the the figure we see in Deuteronomy 18 the one like Moses still to come the redeemer figure but Joshua still has an important role he's got to go in and possess the land so the land is is given but it's not immediately available to go in and possess it you are a participant in this yes we get the next encounter, which will be the walls of, of Jericho falling down. But that's the only one. The rest of the land has to be engaged with by the children of Israel. They are partners in the plan of God, and some of them will fall. It's not like the children of Israel will go to battle and no one will die. It's uh, some will fall in acting out the, uh, the promise of the Lord. The land, that the details of the land here are fantastic. Euphrates, right? The north, the south, I mean, pick a, pick a direction. But notice the way the language is. Every place that your foot will tread, you'll be able to claim. 
Israel has never been as far, like some of these borders here, to the land of the Hittites, you mean Turkey, to the Euphrates, Israel has never had those territories. They've never put their foot there to claim them, except in exile, which is interesting. Isn't that interesting? Israel has been there, but only in exile, never in military conquest. So we often get these uh, these people who come to the Middle East and say, oh, Israel should just invade and take over everything because they're supposed to have it. No, that's not what the, the text says. The text says you can have it if you can put your foot on it. The promise is yours, but you're a participant in this. So I think we need to be very careful to see what the text says. Israel has some nice borders and they're living quite comfortable. There's no need to march up to, to the Euphrates. There's no need to start storming off to Jordan. Okay. The, uh, the, if you put your foot on it and claim it, fine. If not, that's okay too. You are a participant in this. And that's probably going to get me into lots of trouble. And uh, no problem. I'm happy to take your emails and your debates. But the text is quite is quite clear. God is giving you the land. Put your foot on it. Okay? So uh, it's, a, it's a participation thing. It's not You don't just say the, the children of Israel deserve it. So put your foot on it. Okay? Um, now, do you do it by yourself? Well, yes. But at the same time, no, because the Lord says he's going to be with us. But just because God is with you doesn't mean you still have to fight. Okay? There's still a struggle. There's still a battle. There's still um, a conflict. There's still effort. Now, I'm not talking about works for righteousness here. There's not what I'm saying. There's an effort involved in faith. The children of Israel did not sit on the Jordan River and wait for God to just kill everyone, and then they could walk in. They had to walk in. They had to physically do that. And uh, the and, it, and it's also connected to your obedience. The, the, the Lord, in his discussion with Joshua, links their success just as Moses had done. So he's obviously learnt from his teacher that they need to observe everything that is according to, to the Torah. In fact, uh, the, this what, what, what Joshua calls the book of the Torah, the Sefer Torah, whatever that means, okay, at, at, at this time, did he actually have a physical copy? He may have. Um, which one was it? Was it all, all um, five books from Genesis to Deuteronomy, or was it just Deuteronomy? Well, no one's 100% sure. There's debate. But um, the point is, the uh, the injunction for the children of Israel was to put it into practice, and to do it. Right? Teaching you to put it into practice. Not only that, it's not to depart from your lips. It wasn't just to be something you physically do. It was also to be internal. You had to internalize the Bible. It was to come out of you. Right, the uh, this idea of you know where was the Torah always meant to be, on your heart, and again you see it here. It's going to come from your heart, out from your lips. You'll meditate it, you'll observe it, you'll put it into practice, and you will set up a just 
moral society that, that Moses has been talking about in uh, in the first five books. This is how you you function as light to the nations. This is how you treat the land. This is how you treat the people of the land. This is how you treat your women. This is how you treat your slaves. This is how you treat your foreigners. This is how you treat your animals, etc. All all of what we've we've talked about before um, is being is being set up here. It's an incredible a beginning, and this beginning, which is linked to the beginning of the Torah portion, this beginning of the people starts after three days. You begin to see this pattern of threes begin to show up in the entire Torah portion, uh, the the Haftorah portion. Something special about three. Sevens, yes, we have seen that now in, uh, in in the creation story. Genesis chapter one, seven words in the seven days of the week, etc. But now also something happening uh, with with three. And the people are unified when they've heard the pep talk of Joshua. Um, he's God has been telling him to have courage um, and, uh, and, and and he tells the people to have courage and then they turn around to him and say, okay boss, we'll follow you, but you have courage too. So there's a lot of people here who are being told to be strong and uh, and have good courage. In the next part, uh, then the next uh, Torah portion is the beginning of the Bible, what we call Bereshit, and uh, it's Genesis 1 to 6. And uh, it, it, again, is the creation story, and I don't want to go over it too much because our, we want to focus on the Haftorah, except to say this. the You all know that the Torah portion starts with Bereshit bara Elohim, uh, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Now, if you're a good Jewish sage, you read the Bible and with a fine tooth comes, you've been staring at this text for thousands of years, and you notice that uh, the Bible starts with a bet. Bereshit, in the beginning. But um, if you're going to start something, if you're going to start the heavens and the earth, you're going to start everything, if you're going to start the universe, time itself, then what word, what letter of the Bible should it start with? What letter of the alphabet? It should start with an aleph. But you've started with the second letter of the alphabet. So the rabbis are in this conundrum going, oh my gosh, how do you start everything with the second letter of the alphabet? Bet, alpha, bet, aleph, bet. Why don't you start with an aleph? There's lots of great words that you could possibly start with. What an interesting discussion that these guys are having. Okay, the rest of us are going in the beginning. God created. Well, how did He do it? Did He use the Big Bang? You know, you know, we all start just discussing science and, uh, and and evolution and this, that, and the other. Rabbis, why doesn't start with an Aleph? And um, and it's a fascinating discussion. And what they do, their conclusion is, you know what? It does. It does start with an Aleph. I just can't see it. And so what they say is that there's the letter of the law and then there's the spirit of the law. And which one's better? The spirit of the law. So I study the letter of the law. Of course I can. I have to. It's the only thing I've got in front of me. But I acknowledge right from the beginning that there's a mystery. 
And the mystery is that there's a spirit behind this. There's something more than just what I'm reading. There's got to be more. And so I, what they say is that it does start with an Aleph. I just can't see it. But dang it, I'm going to study it till I can find it. And, uh, and that's the, one of the desires. And you see that also played out of the New Testament, where we're encouraged to not just look at the letter of the law, we are encouraged to follow the spirit of the law. And this sort of is being played out, played out here. Uh, and so the, the Genesis starts with the creation and, uh, and, and, and then begins uh, a family. And of course, ah, almost like a days of our lives story, we've got dysfunctional families. I mean, um, that's what you pretty much get in the Bible, isn't it? It's one dysfunctional family after another. If you would mind sending me uh, emails about which family in the Bible was completely functional, I would love to hear it. Okay? Um, isn't it interesting that the Bible produces Adam and Eve, they have kids, and what do our kids do? Oh, murder each other. Yes, that's exactly what siblings are supposed to do. Um, um, horrible stuff. But uh, the Bible doesn't shy away from these issues. It wrestles with them. It tries to teach us something. It doesn't doesn't try and wash over and and and, and give us a Barbie and Ken version of the Bible and and, and world history. And uh, and so here are people just like you and me, even though they are made by the living God, they have um, very real human issues. Uh, but God is not removed from the story. That's another part of this beautiful part of, of, uh, of, uh, of the Torah, is that God is deeply involved in his creation. He is talking with Adam um, at the start. Adam gets to name all the animals. It's fantastic. And there's another beautiful tradition, which is not only does Adam name all the animals, he also names God. God says, what's that animal? It's an elephant. What's that one? Kangaroo. That's kind of weird. What's that one? Platypus. That's really weird. Did I actually make that? I don't remember doing that. Okay. All kinds of crazy animals that God's done. And then God, after, after hearing Adam name all the animals, he says, so what's my name? And so there's this partnership, beautiful partnership between heaven and earth that, uh, that, that we see. Yes, it's a messy story, but it also offers redemption. And then, so let's how, see how they, how they play that out. So the, uh, the Torah portion, there are two Torah portions, uh, two Haftarah portions that are, are, are given for this. One is a Sephardi tradition and one is an Ashkenazi tradition. So here's something very special about the, the Haftarah. It is not exact. If you try and find a list as to which Haftarah you're supposed to read, you will all be reading something completely different. So the Ashkenazis have one version, Sephardis has another, and here is a classic Ashkenazi um, description of what you should read uh, on the Torah. It says, here is a synopsis of the Haftarah. Now, other this is on a synopsis on uh, the Sephardi one. Of uh, sorry of uh, of Isaiah forty two. It says other communities could possibly read less, or they could read more, or they could actually read a different selection of the prophets altogether. Isn't that interesting? Additionally, specific calendrical conditions could cause other haftarah to be read instead of this one. So what are they actually saying? Read whatever you like. But here's a tradition for us, a majority tradition, which is um. The Ashkenazi one, which is going to be one Samuel, 
So we're looking at uh, sacred, sacred history. Okay, 1 Samuel 20, starting at verse 18. And this is a story uh, of basically um, uh, David being kicked out of the house of Saul and beginning, beginning the civil war. The civil war that then sort of rages between the house of Saul and the house of David, culminating in the victory of David and the establishment um, of his throne. But it doesn't start so well. So in, in, in 1 Samuel 20, um, we read, at beginning of verse 18, Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is a new moon. These guys are at this stage are obsessed with new moons, just like the Jewish people are to this day. New moon festivals are very important in the Bible. They are completely lost on uh, on the, the Christian world. But in Jewish tradition, to this day, every time a new moon comes up, there are special prayers that you pray. You acknowledge that there is this cycle of the moon going on, just as there is a cycle of the sun. So we see that there was a festival of the new moon. So tomorrow is the new moon, and you'll be missed because your seat will be empty. Big party at, at uh, Saul's house. And when you have stayed, and when you have stayed three days, ooh, there's that three day thing again. Go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain there by the stone of Azel. Then I'll shoot three arrows. Do you see this pattern of threes beginning? Okay, because the Torah portion, the Bereshit ends with a three. What do I mean by that? The ending of the Torah portion is the genealogy of Adam to Noah, and it, and everybody has a son. Adam begets Shet, Shet be, Seth, Seth begins Enosh, Enosh begins Mahalalel, and goes Kinan, and, and goes down the list. But when you get to Noah, Noah was the father of him, Ham, Shem, and Yafet gives three people completely uh, different from everything you've heard before. Now, if you're hearing the Bible and you're hearing that everybody has one son, and then all of a sudden one hero has three, you sit up, pay attention. The three becomes important. And uh, the three and three start to show up all over here. Here you have three, three, three days uh, waiting for the feast, three arrows. And, uh, and 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 so what Jonathan says is, I'll send a lad saying, "Go find the arrows." If I expressly say to the lad, "Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Come and get them." And as the Lord lives, there is safety for you, and there'll be no harm. But if I say to the to the young man, "Look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away." And as for this matter which I have spoken of, indeed the Lord between you and me. This is forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. The king sat, this is Saul, when the king sat at his seat, as at other times, there was a seat on the wall, and Jonathan arose, and Avner sat on Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything for that day, for he thought, maybe something has happened to him. Maybe he is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And happened on the second day, the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why is the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, 
please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then the king's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You are a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse for your to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for surely he will die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. He ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamelessly. And so it was in the morning that, that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. And then he said to the lad, Now, run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad, lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, No, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and he came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, carry them into the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, bowed down three times. Three again. They kissed one another. They wept together. But David more so. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So you've got here, again, just like Adam and Eve, tension within the family. And this family breaks up. It, it doesn't do so well. Saul, who had, uh, has, has got family, and he actually, in terms of like a rabbinic model, he, he has, he's quite the family man. How many wives does King Saul have? I hear you ask. He has one. How many wives does King David have? I hear you ask. He's got 18. Okay, so which one's a really good model of a family guy, right? Okay, this is a break of a, of a family. We've got a, 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 fa a father, Saul, who's beginning to lose the plot and uh, even hurls spears at his own children. Things are really going going down. The, uh, the, the son um, is now going to favor uh, a, a non-family member as though he was family. So there's all kinds of crazy relationships going on going on here. Now, Jonathan and David swear loyalty to each other, even though Jonathan's not going to survive. Okay, Jonathan is actually going to eventually be killed by the Philistines, and his lineage will will, will not succeed. But uh, this starts a, a very long um, civil war, but it begins with this, uh, with this story of um, uh, new moons, New beginnings, this new a whole whole bunch of new going in there, just like the new heavens and uh, or the, the earth beginning with, with Bereshit. But there's lots of threes in there as well, which are beginning to appear in this number. 
threes become um, quite impactful. Uh, three arrows, three times uh, uh, weeping, three days for Joshua and his army. Later on, it's going to be three nights in the belly of a, of a whale. Threes become incredibly important. And they take on um, a messianic uh, character as well because they've got David in there. Right? So the house of David is now synonymous with, with threes. So the word, the letter three becomes becomes quite important in in that respect. The uh, the the Ashkenaz the, the Sephardis, however, do something very interesting for their haftarah portion. They bring out um, the prophet Isaiah. They don't go for um, what do they call him. They don't go for sacred history, which is uh, um, the, the the Samuel. They go with the words of the prophet, starting at verse five of chapter forty-two, which is a what we would identify as the servant song. If you if you read a bit earlier, you'd see this is actually a very messianic piece of prophecy to attach to the beginning of the Bible. Now, why did they link this? Perhaps with verse five itself. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, who stretched forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So you end up with uh, the, the Haftarah having a, a, obviously a very strong connection with, with Genesis, much more than you might say the sacred reading of history from Samuel. Uh, it's messianic in its character, and I thought, well, um, we're talking about the servant song here. This very strong, who is the servant of the Lord? Messianic character. How does this relate to the the Torah portion? Well, I mean, the classic one is from Genesis three, uh, where it is the seed of a woman who will crush the serpent's head. Biologically, completely impossible. Right? Absolutely ridiculous thing to say. The seed of a woman, women don't have seeds. Men have seeds. Women have eggs. That's how this whole creation thing works, right? Okay, um, Biology 101. But you've got this incredible uh, ambiguity in the text. In fact, all of the first uh, Torah portion is ambiguous. Okay, In the beginning, God creates the world, Elohim. He's the guy who creates in Genesis chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 2, somebody called Adonai Elohim rests inside creation. There's this new person who turns up. Not only does this new person turn up, he allows himself to be affected by time. How is it possible that God can be affected by time? He is outside of time. Makes absolutely no sense. How can God, who existed prior to time, who invented time, can possibly rest 24 hours. It's not possible. Yet, the Bible creates this piece of ambiguity by saying, Adonai Elohim rested. He had rested for an entire Sabbath. And so there's this incredible ambiguity. Then it goes further. What is this seed of a woman? And, uh, and, and, and what, is this, what is this crushing of the serpent? Who's the serpent? Well, obviously, we've got this snake that is uh, engaging in conversation. Um, who is this 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 being that, that talks? Well, later on in the New Testament, Paul's going to call that the devil. 
and uh, and so there, there was a long Jewish tradition where they said snakes don't talk. There's obviously something going on here, and they 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 put it more towards uh, the the devil being being this, and he ensnared uh, the nations, he ensnared all of humanity. Remember, this is this is um, um, Adam, okay, not being able to keep the law of God before the law of God, right? Adam doesn't have the Torah, still can't obey God. Right? Often we there's this this there's this sort of um, bias that says the Jewish people got to Mount Sinai, they got given the, the, the Ten Commandments, and they can't keep them. Look how bad they are. Well, Adam had one thing he couldn't do, right? And he still couldn't do it. Okay? And he's not Jewish. So there's this sort of inbuilt thing that that uh, that it, it, let's not blame don't don't run around and blame Jewish people for being disobedient. We are all disobedient, and uh, but the the calling was to be a light to the nations. And yet, so the, here in this in this Torah portion, sorry, half Torah portion, um, uh, which is very messianic because it's this servant that is um, being called upon here. Um, the Lord says, "I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness." This is verse six. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to keep you as a covenant to the people. You are a covenant. Now, well, that is just mind-boggling. God makes covenants. People make covenants with each other. Jonathan and David made covenants with each other. Everybody's making covenants. Now, the Lord says about this beloved servant, you're a covenant. You're, gonna, you're a light to the Gentiles. Okay? This, is, this is incredibly prophetic, powerful stuff. When do you read it? At the beginning of your Bible reading. The beginning of your year, the first time you all get together, the Sephardi uh, people are getting together and they're saying, there's somebody who's coming who's going to be a light to the Gentiles. What a way to start your Bible reading. Okay, what's he going to do? It's going to open the eyes of the blind. Sounds fantastic. It's going to take out the prisoners from prison. Beautiful. Um, everyone who's in darkness, they're going to come out. Why? Because I'm the Lord. And holy is my name, right? And I don't give my glory to another. Very powerful, very prophetic stuff. Wonderful ways to start your your um your reading of Bible. Really nice way to start your year is to sit down and talk about this incredible coming Redeemer who's going to do some incredibly powerful things. He's going to be the praise of the ends of the earth. He's from sea to sea, everything that's in it. He's going to uh, to be their God. Uh, this this is a um, you're looking at a community who is sitting down to read the Bible who's looking beyond themselves. God is going to be the God of the Gentiles as well as the Jews, just as you see in Genesis, just as you see at the beginning. Of the really, I think it's a quite a nice link that uh, that they've done. the The Samuel portion is a nice well. It's a terrible description of, of dysfunctional family, but it, it's a very interesting where it plays out the uh, the number three in a very strong messianic messianic line. But I think the uh, the prophetic portion of Isaiah forty two, which is the uh, sort of more Sephardic tradition, um, really sits down to open up um, the Bible by saying, "This is what's coming." This is actually what's in front of us. This is actually the future. This is the hope 
that uh, that we should look for. We read of these absolute disasters at the start of our Bible. That don't eat. It is one tree you can't have, and yet yet they take it. Uh, we've got some kids. They kill each other. Then uh, it's just one mess after after another. But then you get the prophetic portion. There's always hope, and. In our modern day situation, the one that we're in right now, where on Simchat Torah, which was meant to be an incredible story of hope and laughter and love and a new rhythm of reading the Bible, people woke up to pain and anger and confusion. And we have to always remember that uh, that's not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. There is this 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 message of hope that comes from the prophets, a message of hope that comes from the voice of God. And that is something that we need to hold on to and that we need to share uh, with the world because they need it right now. We'll just if you only want to look at darkness, that's incredibly sad. Shine the light as bright as you can, because God is certainly not finished with his creation. The Torah is a story that begins and doesn't end, but we know the end of the story.